Hello, everyone, and welcome to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Before we get started, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, linked in the description below. We hope you enjoy this episode. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Health Law Talk with Shahardi Sherman-Williams. I'm Conrad Meyer. And today in the studio, we have some very special guests with us today. Uh, George Mueller, one of my partners here at the firm, uh, Transactional Counsel. And uh, also, Dr. Alice Hoyt is in the show today. She's uh, She is a board-certified allergist and is the chairman and founder of the nonprofit organization Teal Schoolhouse. And I'm going to let them both give a little background about themselves. Today, our episode is going to be talking about nonprofits and specifically uh, provider nonprofits. How does a provider go about forming a nonprofit? And and I'm going to turn it over to uh, George. George, how are you? Hey, good morning, comrade. George, want to tell everybody a little about yourself and your background and, and, and kind of segue into how we, how we start the uh, nonprofits for providers. Oh, sure. Okay. Um Let's see, I'm kind of a rehabilitated CPA. Uh, I practiced at a big four accounting prior to going to law school and um, started practicing in 2002 and been doing primarily transactional practice ever since then. Um, I think I would say my practice focuses somewhat on some tax advices as well, and so it brings a topic today. Um, we do some transactional work and some tax work. That's great. That's great. And then, Alice, tell us, give us why, why are you here today? Give us your, uh, your background, uh, and, and especially Teal Schoolhouse. What is that, and, and how did that come to be? Sure. So thanks so much for having me today. Um, I'm excited to be in the studio with you guys. Amazing studio. Um, and well, thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah. Um, so I am an allergist, and when I was in fellowship, actually, I had a school reach out and say, hey, Dr. Hoyt, how do we use this kiddo's EpiPen? Like, I know how to use it because I'm a school nurse, but how do people use it if I'm not here? And I said, well, that's a great question. What's your school's medical emergency response plan? And it was sort of crickets. And from my training initially as an internist and a pediatrician running codes in the hospital, I knew just how important it is to have a team approach to responding to a medical emergency. And that is how the Teal Schoolhouse and specifically the Code Anna program was born. Code Anna equipped schools to be prepared for medical emergencies. And when I realized just how dedicated I was to this cause, I decided that I really needed to find a, a, a group of colleagues who felt the same, take ownership of it, create a nonprofit to support it and bring it to the levels it needs to be to help people across the country. And we're going to get more into that a little bit later about Teal Schoolhouse and, and specifically the Code Anna program. Uh, but, but real quick, how, is it, how has it changed your life with respect to bringing that message out to schools and, and, and really faculty to get that message to them about how to set these emergency responses up? How has it changed from the beginning to where you are now? Well, it's personally, it's incredibly rewarding, but professionally, it allows me to become a better doctor ultimately. By going into communities, into schools in particular, all schools are different. You can have a K through three and then three blocks away another K through three, and the cultures are different, the people are different, their approaches to challenges, and their challenges are different. And so by by working with people, whether they're teachers, whether they're school nurses, whether they're students, I'm able to hear 
what people's anxieties are regarding medical emergencies, regarding medical issues in general, and then help sort of bring them from their point A to a point B of understanding what a medical emergency is, understanding medical issues in general, which I think just helps us all when we all have a better understanding of what is food allergy, what is asthma, what is a cardiac condition, and helps alleviate anxiety when schools are being prepared for a response. Excellent. And and you can't just go go down to the, the local store and say, hey, I want to form a nonprofit. They're a little more complicated than that. And and so sure. I, I want to kick it to George. George, when you when you when you're talking about putting one of these together, mm-hmm. what where how do we form these? Where where do we start? Sure. Uh I guess first step you've got to do is you got to figure out what sort of nonprofit undertaking you want to have. Like who are your core nucleus of uh, supporters of it? Who's going to serve on your board? Uh, what your objective is? And it, once you sort of get that idea figured out uh, from a practical standpoint, you file with the Louisiana Secretary of State or whatever state you're in, if not Louisiana, for, to form a nonprofit corporation. Uh, you file articles of incorporation just like you would any other corporation, only, you know, not, not to get too far in the weeds. They have a few things you have to have in there, one of which you have to specifically state what your objective is. Mm-hmm. And then, two, you have to provide for no private inurement with respect to what happens to the assets of that entity, both while it's being operated and then upon liquidation or termination. Um, once you get that form, then what you want to do is apply for exempt organization treatment and uh, – that's what the Internal Revenue Service and that process, depending on the type of nonprofit entity you want to form, and there are a bunch of different ones. I think everyone's familiar with a 501c3, but there's actually a, a long list of a different type of 501c4, c5. I don't, I could, it's like it's alphabet, alphabet soup to soup. me. It really right. is. And so, you know, I'll run down, see if I can recall a few, uh, you know, the, probably the most popular, most readily available. Appreciate it as a 501c3, which is basically your typical religious, educational, charitable, scientific, literary, et cetera, et cetera. It files a 1023 to be formed. Uh, but there are civic leagues, social welfare organizations, whatever that's a 501c4. Um, 501c6 is a business league, chamber of commerce, et cetera, real estate boards. Uh, and, and it goes on. I mean, it goes on for pages. And so the form 1023 is filed. Those have recently migrated to online because of COVID, and now I think they're just exclusively online with few exceptions. Um, It's an information intake, and and it basically, it asks you all the questions you could possibly think of about who's going to, what's the name of the entity, what's the purpose of the entity, uh, how are you going to raise money, what are you going to do with that money, what are the goals and purposes, what are your expected budgets, who's going to be in governance, who's on the board, what sort of employees you're going to have. Basically, anything you'd ask someone who wants to form a company, only it's, it's got to fit into the specific requirements of no private enrollment, and depending on what you do with that money, like if you're going to do grants, if you're going to award money to people, if you're just going to give money based on your purpose, then you've got to have it in your governance documents, and uh, it's all got to be reflected in your application. But and it's so, not simply just like an LLC. I mean, LLC, you can fill out the form, but, I mean, it's oh, a yeah. lot more involved than that, isn't it? No, right? and, and, you know, the, the 1023 is several pages long. It gets pretty granular in the type of information it asks for. Um, you submit that information electronically now along with the user fee, and uh, they'll tell you it's six to eight weeks turnaround. I think recently it's been six to eight months, more like. It, and, it's uh, definitely longer. Right. Um, I'm sure you you have some colleagues that have experienced some additional yes. delays. I think it's primarily due to uh, COVID-related uh, workplace issues. I know the service for a long time wasn't really uh, 
picking up mail and they weren't really doing them. Now I think they have some people who are remote working and they're sort of catching up on that backlog, but still with respect to exempt organizations, uh, those applications are running several months. Now, most of the questions we get though. So, so is it, is it retroactive? Is it not retroactive? I mean, how does that work in terms of the determination letter? Uh, typically, uh, as I understand it, the, uh, your exempt organization status, uh, which you get a determination letter if you, if you're approved, will relate back to the day at least that you've made the application. Um, you try to avoid, say, forming the entity and doing anything that looks like operating or fundraising before you've at least made an application and submitted it. Uh, that way you don't have any overlap of whether or not you have status, whether or not people, you know, would say give funds to an entity that doesn't even have an application on record, then the issue is what, whether or not that would be potentially, you know, deductible and you could create something that kind of deviates from a donor's expectations. So you try to avoid that. So, so Alice, when George is talking about all this and talking about forms, was this the, uh, can you tell us, it, it was your experience when putting together Teal Schoolhouse, uh, was that, uh, was that similar? I mean, is that, do you, what do you recall when you were forming this, uh, the experience and getting it all off the ground? When I was forming Teal Schoolhouse, that was several years ago. Um, and so I had, I believe I had a lawyer work with me in some capacity with articles. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I have since learned a lot about how everything works and why it works the way it does. And We find that a lot of our physician clients have a tendency to become very good uh, de facto lawyers during the course and scope of our representation. We like to think it's because we're doing such a good job, but personally I think it's because most of them are pretty smart cookies. Well, I, I also know my boundaries, <laughs> and I know when I need to help with things. Um, I'm going to start giving allergy shots soon, by the way. Oh, gosh. So. Um, Maybe we should have some boundaries on that, right? <laughs> no. No, and by the way, I, no, all joking aside, Conrad can attest to this, many of our uh, physician clients uh, tend to be some of the uh, better informed oh, yeah. and actually more responsive and accepting of legal advice when they get it. They've been, they're, most of them are very good clients, and some of them are challenging because they're so informed. So it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. Well, iron sharpens iron. And when I know as a physician, we, we come from one place, and as legal experts, you guys come from another place. And so I think it's really nice when we can work together to get to, oh, absolutely. to, to where we need to go. Um, I was recently helping one of my mentees set up a nonprofit, mm -hmm. and so and that was this summer. And so we did do everything online and all the steps you said. We also applied for an EIN, and that was useful when we were applying through the state of Louisiana, and then also for that exempt status. Talking about the uh, the ten twenty three, and it can be it certainly can be tedious, but it also helps you just really think out what is it that you want to do. And I know um, I was asking my mentee last night. I said, you know, Megan, what what three things did I help you do? Because she had this amazing idea. Her idea, um, her nonprofit is called Red Flags to Freedom, and her idea is to teach healthcare trainees how they can recognize and respond to human trafficking situations. Um, and and she said, well, I mean, I think the first thing, I mean, you said, like, well, why not do it? You know, like you have to have a clear idea, just like you said, sure. you have to be motivated to do it. You have to have a motivation to do it. You can't just think, oh, this is a great idea. But if you're not motivated to do it, 
then you're not going to be able to put in that work. You're and, not going to clearly think it out. And having a good core group of people who That's are going to support your mission is, is mentorship in a, in a team of people that, sure. that you trust to help guide the organization. And that's your board. Yes. And, it, it can be very daunting. And so if there are people listening right now that are sort of looking up on the IRS website, like, how do I do this? And looking at this 1023, it can be daunting. But but be encouraged that if you have that idea on your heart, like, you just think through that information, talk with one of your colleagues who you trust, and and work through it. And why not make this happen? Because if you don't make it happen, who's going to who do will? it? Right. And, and to your point about right. the forms being very helpful at a tax professor who's a practitioner in town one of the things he would say instead of going through textbooks and a bunch of arguments and cases he'd say well did you read the instructions on the form Mm -hmm. and you're like well i and so i always try to do that and it's been so helpful and to your point about you know when you first conrad when you first asked about well you know what do you do how do you form one of these things you know i didn't say oh you go file articles no you've got there's a business planning component you've got to identify exactly what you want to do who's going to be doing it and that 1023 almost looks like one of those business capstone classes where you've got to start a business or tackle some significant thing and do a startup. It walks you through it. It forces you to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you find people who are entrepreneurial who have a, a really good idea may not have either the training or the structure of thought mm-hmm. as to how to get it all done. And so it's, it's actually kind of helpful. It's a little tedious, but, you know, mm-hmm. if you're someone who's preparing them, you kind of understand. And it's our job to guide people to kind of take – whatever their mission or their passion is, and to guide them through it in order to be able to kind of get that thing to the point where they get a determination letter. And you also said something that I want to build on. You said that um, you mentioned the word entrepreneurial, and you also mentioned the the term business. A a not-for-profit is is not a hobby. It should not be a hobby. It is an entity. It is a business. It is just a business that you are not earning a profit from, but it is a business. It has to support itself. They definitely need to accumulate budgetary excesses in order to be able to support future operations. Right. And, and so with that with that said, I mean, it, it, any nonprofit, it can be something that provides medical services. It could be something that provides education or, or anything like that. But it, it can't just run on its own. And you can even pay salaries to employees in the nonprofit to make it run. Uh, one thing, and I know we didn't touch on this earlier, but I remember a long time ago when the uh, when Form 990 came out, and that was a big deal in nonprofits, especially with healthcare entities. So I know we didn't talk about it, we didn't touch about it in the materials when we were looking at this, uh, but mm-hmm. I, if, if you don't mind, um, George, what's Form 990 and how does it interact with nonprofits uh, from the 50,000 tree foot view here? Sure, uh, depending on the type of entity. Uh, it's a reporting requirement where basically you report the results of operations. Um, depending on size, you know, a lot of your smaller nonprofits used to be exempt. Now I think they may all have to file a short version of it or a longer version of it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of your like larger health systems, whatever, to the extent um, they're nonprofit, they've got to report all the results of operations on Form 990. Gotcha. And 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 so when we get to when we get to that, what? Does and I guess to Dr. Hoyt's point, does the service delivery of the nonprofit is that similar, dissimilar as a maybe for profit? Does it change the services if you're a nonprofit, or or, or you know does it stay the same? What in your view, what what in terms of the services that you're wanting to deliver, does the status of a nonprofit versus profit change the service? The service should, of course, be in line with the mission of the organization, but regarding quality of service, 
Absolutely not. Just like if you're going to a for-profit hospital versus a not-for-profit hospital, there is a standard of care. And um, it, and so you should always be delivering the best possible product or service possible, regardless mm-hmm. of your tax status. Okay. And so one of the biggest things, I think, George, to your point, uh, to fund ongoing operations, there needs to be core uh, communication, development, uh, and things like that. So uh, what advice from the transactional council would you give to the client with respect to how do you do that? Yeah. What do you, what do, you do? It, it starts with maybe understanding that uh, typically nonprofit healthcare entities have a tendency to be a little bit more mission-driven rather than purely profit-driven, but the great equalizer is supposed to be standard of care. You're, you're not going to treat a sick patient any differently if you work at Hospital X's for-profit system versus a non-profit X. There may be limitations insofar as where you're located and funding available in terms of standard of care, but you know, that's supposed to be neutral to funding, right, except for when maybe you just can't afford things. Um, but uh, to, to my knowledge, I think you, when you look at how you set up an entity, you're talking about setting up nonprofits. I, it seems to me that uh, a lot of the nonprofits who operate in healthcare are uh, either large health systems or they're specific, specific to uh, organ procurement or a specific disease or a specific cause. Much like any other nonprofit outside of the healthcare arena, they have a tendency to fill a need and identified need where, you know, the current system doesn't fully address need in underserved communities. I mean, we certainly in the city of New Orleans, I think to some degree, uh, parts of New Orleans are considered an underserved community. So there's an absolute need for uh, nonprofits and healthcare to be able to provide necessary care to all of our citizens, right? On a quote unquote, cost neutral basis, so to speak. And so Dr. Hoyt, you, you have a founded a successful nonprofit, the Teal Schoolhouse. And one of its primary programs from talking to you earlier before the show uh, is a program, Code Anna, and you, you mentioned it earlier uh, in your discussions. Uh, why don't you, you know, give us a little background about Code Anna and tell us from, you know, early days on, what was your experience to where the Code Anna program is as, as we sit here today? Absolutely. It's, it's been a transition and it's been a growth process and, and one in which I've grown tremendously, I would say. Starting Code Anna, like I mentioned earlier, we recognize that schools don't necessarily know how to use epinephrine auto-injectors, but they also don't have a comprehensive medical emergency response plan. So we have worked for the last five years to create educational programming, targeting primarily schools and also early child care entities to teach schools um, sort of two two different things. One, how can you have a comprehensive medical emergency response plan like a fire drill, but a medical drill? Let me interject real quick. So are you finding that schools, most schools that you're interacting with on behalf on the CODANA program do not have some sort of an emergency response plan in place? Most schools have a plan of call school nurse and call 911. And as a board-certified allergist, immunologist, pediatrician, um, and internist, I think we can do better. And I think schools can have a more comprehensive response plan. We should have a better plan for medical emergencies, or at least equivalent, compared to what we have for fires. Because what's more likely, a medical emergency 
or somebody having a trauma on the football field, somebody having anaphylaxis in the cafeteria, someone having cardiac, sudden cardiac arrest on the basketball court. So from your standpoint, what CODANA would help with these schools is to develop that plan so mm-hmm. that, in other words, you're just not waiting for 911 to arrive, and who knows how long that could be. That's exactly and, right. And you're talking about vital time for children and having that ability to respond. That window of response. Right? Absolutely. Exactly. And so that's what CODANA does and you're finding that there's a huge need for that. Is that correct? Absolutely. In, Across the country. In some of the work that we've Regardless done. Regardless of socioeconomic status of the school, too. Right. That's right. an important no, that, point that was, to yeah, make. Sorry you had to made a you. point earlier about, you know, you go to different schools and, and they could be blocks away from each other and they treat things completely differently. And one of the things that leapt out of my mind was access to resources is a big differentiating factor there. But, you know, I was going to ask um, – or, or say that in doing some of the work we've done with you, uh, I was amazed to kind of discover the lack of apparent existing programs for what you do and for what the Teal Schoolhouse does. I, you would have really thought that this would be more well-developed, more disseminated, more readily available. Well, it's always in when something bad happens, people suddenly pull the micro, mic, mic, magnifying glass out and say, okay, well, What's the protocol for when this a bad out uh, you know adverse outcome happens and someone says oh we just dial nine one one right so in medicine we try to be very proactive mm-hmm. um, sometimes of course we do M and M's where we we look back at cases that have gone badly and we figure out what went wrong the morbidity mortality yes. yeah okay and um, and and sometimes other organizations they don't have the the luxury of that. Um, of that healthcare training that that physicians, nurses, other healthcare providers have to recognize that being proactive is going to save tremendously not just anxiety but can save lives. And so sometimes other organizations, entities can be more reactive. Yeah. And that's what Codana does. And this and, and and real quick, real quick, what is the penetration Codana has now across the country? We're in multiple states. We have multiple programs in multiple states. I've talked primarily today about our MediReady program or medical emergency response planning. We also get in the weeds with laypersons in particular, helping them recognize particular medical emergencies. Our most popular program is our online epinephrine training program so that once you respond to the medical emergency, we teach you the response. But once you get that team of adults there, then how exactly do you use an EpiPen? We also help schools with finding um, access to resources for AEDs, um, really just helping schools be prepared for a medical emergency. And, and how many schools have, from the time that you started the Codana program to today, how many schools have you touched with, uh, with this program? More than five? Oh, yes. So between, More than 50? Yes. Between early child care centers, wow. we have a very strong presence in New York City, um, schools in Virginia, Ohio, really across the country, thousands. That's incredible. I mean, talk about sure. talk about carrying out your mission because because the core mission has always been the same, but look at the growth from you know start to, to today. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So when it's when when you're giving advice to, for example, your colleague about starting the Red Flag nonprofit, um, and for those listening who have the dream or the inclination, the desire. Uh, or whatever you know, whatever motivates you to want to really you know have a purpose, right? What would be some of the core suggestions you would have for them when you're first starting out? I think the first thing, once you decide that this is what you want to do, 
then educate yourself. Look at the IRS website. Educate yourself on what the process needs to be. If you feel like, find a mentor basically. And that mentor can be an attorney. You guys have been tremendous mentors to me and have helped guide me through areas that I don't understand um, to help to help me be successful. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, I've, I want to do this. I prayed on this. I know this is my clear idea. I want to equip schools to be prepared for medical emergencies or I want to do fill in the blank. Have a very specific statement about what you want to do. Educate yourself through good resources. IRS has a lot of good information online. And, it's a great place to store it. And, and talk with somebody who who is going to help you get there. Don't talk with somebody who is going to be a naysayer and throw up all this stuff like, oh, well, how are you going to compete with this giant organization? How are you going to reach thousands? Like, ignore all that. If you just reach one person with your mission, then you're you're fulfilling your mission. Start small. Right, right. And so, well, and, and let me ask you this. As a private practice physician as well, how has Codana and really the Teal Schoolhouse on the nonprofit, how does that work in conjunction with your private practice? So I'm very newly into private practice. Um, and we do welcome you to the greater New Orleans area. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's nice to be home. Um, so just say welcome back. Thank you. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it works. I know I'm already itching to get down. Um, Is that some allergy humor you just put in there? <laughs> Um, I'm itching to get um, on Metairie Road. That's where my practice is and and work with the schools there um, and really get involved in the community. That's really one of one of the things I was so excited about about coming back to New Orleans is I knew that I could really get involved in the community. Um, But having worked for Cleveland Clinic, Vanderbilt, I started Codana at University of Virginia. um, It's been very exciting to incorporate this uh, this this sort of medical education is really what it is, and I had an award through the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology how, on educator development. I was going to ask, how much of the education you do does it do you deal with, say, parents of children who are first discovering or learning about this type of allergy and or, or the type of allergies that give rise to? In my practice, that. That right now is is 100% of what my practice is. Um, in my previous practices at different organizations, I have focused a lot of efforts on food allergy. And a lot of times what happens is a, a kiddo has a reaction. They go to the ER. The ER might refer them to an allergist or they might go to their pediatrician who refers them to the allergist. And really uh, what breaks my heart is that, that time between when that child has that reaction and until they get to see me and talk with me or one of my allergy colleagues to help that family understand what happened to your child. To give child. them that knowledge, to take that, that, that mm-hmm. kind of anxiety away and at least exactly. give them a, a, a path forward. Because I can debunk myths like, oh, if you see peanut butter, your child's going to have an allergic re- I can debunk myths. Mm-hmm. I can help guide them to live and enjoy their life while we also manage this this chronic issue. Uh, to to your point about being uh, proactive, uh, as a parent of two children, I think one of them has had someone who had a peanut allergy in their class. I, I found that what was most effective was simply the messaging that the parents did in a measured way, but in an effective way, to say, hey, look, when you all the parties, the pizza parties are bringing food for snack and all these interactions where – all these foreign sources of food are going to be introduced or available. Um, 
the messaging there, I mean, that is an ounce of prevention, right? Because it is. And it's, it's tough that that is put onto those families because it's hard it, enough. I just started sending my daughter to her little preschool and it's hard enough to send a child to be in someone else's care and then to have to, uh, to be concerned that your child's not going to come home because someone accidentally brings a Reese's Pieces to school. Mm-hmm. And so that's where Code Anna really likes to collaborate with schools so that we can serve as a resource. We have allergists across the country to serve as resources to schools so that when these questions arise of, oh, this 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 mom is really concerned that there's a walnut tree on the other side of the playground and that her son who has a tree nut allergy is, is going to have anaphylaxis, we can help the school address those it, those challenges, and we can also help make sure those families are plugged in with board-certified allergists who especially have a, a great interest in food allergy, really, again, to just help people have an understanding of their disease process. And, George, back back to you. Mm-hmm. As transactional counsel and, 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 and someone here at the firm who is, you know, basically the, the leader of the, the transactional practice here at the firm, uh, what do you tell clients who are – you know, after Alice, you know, Dr. Hoyt points out that, hey, here's your mission, your vision, and you're ready to go, and you got your information. Uh, what do you tell potential clients who want to actually sit down with you, get advice on how to start the nonprofit? What do they need to bring? What do they do? I'd, I'd tell them based on Alice's answer to call Dr. Hoyt. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, all joking aside, uh, I would repeat a little, a lot of what she said. You, you've got to, I guess, to start with, it's that spark, right? So you're going to have to have that. Um, once you've kind of get the smoke clear from your initial idea generation, and/or you've got you know what you want to do, and, and I can think of a number of nonprofits that we've helped incorporate over the years, and each of them usually always had one or two driving people who had experienced something or dealing with something, um, and they wanted to fix it or they wanted to make something in their world what they were doing better or say you know there's a hole to plug here right or there's there's some money that needs to go there and there's and so once you've found that it is sort of like throwing meat on the bone at that point then you've got to walk through the initial formation process and you've got to kind of solicit that initial that initial core group of people and how you're going to you know assign different roles and then walk and then walking through the form 1023 uh, is a big help. It mm-hmm. forces you to go through that loom and get it all straight insofar as how you're going to govern the entity, where your money's going to come from, how you're going to solicit, what you're going to do with that money, um, and what your purposes are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can certainly help with that. But a lot of it is self-driven. It just needs to be directed exactly. and informed. And then some of the unknowns are, how do I do this? What if they've never done it before? Uh, obviously, clients who have done this before are pretty easy to deal with because they've kind of been through it and they've been educated, such as Dr. Hoyt. Um People who have that spark and that drive and that need to, to fix something, um, first time, they need a little bit more direction. But uh, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Like I said, the IRS, it reads like stereo instructions, but it's very informative. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I want to thank both of you. I think this has been very informative. I think this is uh, it's a question that we get asked a lot. I know Dr. Hoyt gets asked. I know uh, George gets asked. So I want to thank both of you for coming on the show. And, and before we, we roll out, I want, absolutely. Uh, I want to, uh, get, uh, Dr. Hoyt, if you can tell everybody, if, if you are in need of school resources and, and are interested in the Code Anna program, how would someone get in touch with you? Go to codeanna.org, C O D E A N A. 
org one in like Anna Philaxis, because that's what we first started helping schools with. Um, but we help schools with anything medical emergency preparedness. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for that. And, and I want to tell, tell you about all the listeners, George, if, if, if the listeners have a question and they want to talk to you about forming nonprofits from a transactional standpoint, how would they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, my email is gam at shahardy.com. That's C-H-E-H-A-R-D-Y.com. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank both of you and uh, thank all our listeners for taking the time to listen to this wonderfully informative podcast. Uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always email myself at cm at com, And please make sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, we want to make sure that we get all of the relevant podcasts to you as soon as they are published. So uh, we want to thank you for joining us today and look forward to another episode soon. Thank you for listening to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. For more information or to contact us, please visit our website linked in the description below. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube linked in the description below. Thank you for listening.